The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, somehow we're back again. <laughs> we we did it, Matt. You're right. Here we are. How are you? I'm doing well. This is this is another triple distilled episode. You know, I always get really excited when we're recording these. Tonight we're going to be going over the abnormal CBC. This was a this was a live show that we did, Paul. Probably one of the greatest days of my life. We were at Walter <laughs> Walter Reed USU. Uh, it was I think it was our first live podcast or one of our first live is podcasts. That right? Well, maybe our first live podcast where the audience wasn't drunk. Let's put it that way. I think <laughs> yeah, that no, I was right. right. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was a great time. And uh, before we introduce our wonderful uh, co-host, Paul, can you just remind people, what is it? Who are we? What do we generally do on these shows? Sure. I'm just like, give me one second to reminisce. I just want to mention, if you do go back and listen to the the actual episode itself, there's a part where the audience audibly groans at one of the punny names, which is actually <laughs> one of my favorite things of, of the show that I listen to. But in any case, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you mentioned, we are distilling down, um, it was like an hour long episode into a, so the quick hits and sort of the high points from our episode on CBC abnormalities with Dr. Mary Kwok. I don't think you tease it like we normally do, so I'm just going to go out and said that we have, of course, our third co-host, um, the spectacular Beth Garbs Garbatelli, with us to also help guide us through this particular episode. Hi, Garbs. Are we? Are wait? Are we calling you Garbs tonight, or Beth, Elizabeth? Call me Garbs. I don't, you, call me Garbs. Whatever you want. I always get thrown Garbs. off when okay. people call me Elizabeth, which happens a lot because my name tag says Elizabeth. <laughs> so I'm always like, "What's going on?" <laughs> Yeah, it should say Gar- they should give you the option for nicknames as a medical student on, uh, you know, making rounds. All right, Garb. So this was I feel like the CBC is one of those topics that is kind of deceptively like people are like, oh, yeah, I look at CBCs all the time. But as a student starting to approach this in the past few years, what did you think of this episode or the topic? Like, what are some of your favorite things that you learned Uh, that you think are high yield. Yeah, I love this episode. I think that when you start out looking at CBCs, you know, second year, third year of medical school, you fall prey to the the trap of like looking at every little red value and being like, what does that mean? What does it mean that it's slightly red? What does it mean that it's slightly abnormal? And I think that this episode did a really good job kind of taking you through what to be actually concerned about, like thinking about it in a more um, systematic way. One of the pearls that I – I listened to this episode when it aired and I kind of remembered this and like I definitely think it helped me sort of sound like I knew what I was talking about or thinking about when I first started on the wards and that was the absolute count Um, when you're looking at a CBC versus like value that more than the percentages. It's going to give you a little bit more information. So yeah, I I just think this is a good good kind of bird's eye view of this topic, which – you know, obviously anything to do with an abnormality you find on the CBC can be a lot more complicated. And we do get into a few of the specific conditions that you may encounter, but very helpful episode overall. So I would encourage people, you mentioned you get this overwhelm when you look at a CBC, but I really would encourage people, keep it simple. Look at the three cell lines, the white cells, the red cells, the platelets. If the red cells are abnormal, you can look at the MCV. 
you know, size of the cells and then the RDW, like are the, are, are the cells mostly the same size or is there a huge variability if it's a, it's a large RDW? And I think, as you just mentioned, looking at the absolute counts when you're talking about the differential, not the percentages is the way to go there too. And she gave us some cutoffs that we're going to get to later, but I think that's, that's the simple way to kind of look at things. And then you can see, you know, is there just one cell line? Is it an isolated cell line that's down or abnormal? Or is it multiple cell lines? Because that's going to lead you in different directions. So that's that would be my advice to the audience. And don't pay attention. Paul, you ever look at the MCCH, the MCH? Got to make that exact same joke, Wado. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, where are you training? You stop looking at that. Or the mean platelet volume. At what point did you just never look back and you're like, I'm, I'm gone. That's something I'm just not going to worry about. That will probably be okay. Yes. So, you know, those, I'm sure there's people out there that could tell you a time when it's useful to look at some of that stuff, but I think largely you can avoid a lot of those things. And hopefully we'll be able to give you a framework here that's going to build on what we've already just talked about here. And I just love this quote from our guest, uh, Beth, which you, you had highlighted here, which is like, I love my CBC. Like I love my morning coffee. I think only a hematologist (laughs) would say that. Although probably all of us on this uh, on this call here, probably all of us are looking at CBCs with our morning coffee because it's like you you check your patient's labs in the morning, so it kind of goes together, I guess. Yeah, and we did talk about, and this is you know um, something that, doc- that one of the Doctor Williams rules, you know, do be ju- judicious when you're ordering, especially if it's like a clinic patient and maybe isn't necessary to order it because then you might end up dealing with these abnormalities that may or may not be clinically significant. Yeah, Paul, do you want to, the Williams rule, I think it's only, it's only fair if you tell the audience, what was the Williams rule, which was really heavily factored into this episode. (laughs) I think it was a core principle. It was, it's the Williams rule in general. And don't, don't follow this. Again, this show, not medical advice. Um, But if you don't, (laughs) if you don't like a lab value, uh, the first step is just to repeat it, uh, generally speaking. And I, I, but jokes aside, I think if something doesn't make sense, or you're not quite sure what to do with something, or if it's something that just doesn't fit with the clinical picture. It's reasonable to repeat first before you go too buck wild. Obviously, if you're extremes, then then it might be worth being a little bit more upset. But I love repeating labs um, in the hopes that I get the number that I want. And a lot of the times it works out okay. Yeah. I, I think when we asked her for take-home points at the end or pet peeves, her pet peeve was, if you're going to refer someone to us, please just at least repeat the CBC one time before you send them to me. Because even though she feels great when she, the patient gets there and she's like, your labs are now normal, so I have nothing to work up. Uh, she said it is kind of a waste of resources. So please, you know, remember the great Dr. Paul Williams and repeat those values, especially if you don't like them uh, before you send somebody <laughs> off. That That's for the most part. I'm talking, you know, if there's an emergency going on, you got to recognize that. Hey, audience. In the past year or two, the world has turned into a really weird place. Has this caused you to question things, maybe the way you practice medicine or where you practice medicine? Do you ever think, is there a different way? Let me tell you about our sponsor today, Locum Story. Have you ever thought about, hey, I want to supplement my income or maybe I want to travel more? How can I do that? Well, locumstory.com is the place where you can find all the answers and they actually use real doctors to give you the answers. They have everything you could dream about on your site to answer your questions about pay ranges, taxes, various questions related to your specialty, and how locums might fit into your life. A lot of physicians that do locum tenums, actually, they're practicing a full-time job and they do this to supplement their income. 
You can do this in another state. You can even do this in another country. It doesn't have to be where you live, but it can be if that's what you're looking for. Most agencies actually arrange and pay for the cost of your airfare, rental car, and your hotel during the assignment. It's a sweet gig. So where can you start? Visit locumstory.com to peruse their trends by specialty tool, a list of the top 10 agencies, endless FAQs, and a quiz to help you determine if locums is a right fit for your current situation. Again, visit locumstory.com to see if a locum tenums assignment is right for you. That's locumstory.com. Beth, where, where are we going to take this next? What is the, so we, we've got our CBC and I think first we were going to kind of talk about some of these mild abnormalities. Yeah. And she did highlight, um, abnormalities that you should be concerned about, sort of those red flag ones. If you see blasts on the smear, um, basophilia is, is always an abnormality that should be kind of worked up more for, uh, more because it could be something mild proliferative. Um, severely elevated counts. Those are the sort of things where you'd want that immediate hemonc consult. Yeah, absolute eosinophil count over 1,500. Less than that is a little bit less alarming. Sometimes it can be like a medication effect or allergy. And there is, uh, we'll give a shout out to Dr. Rahul Ganatra was involved with a recent paper looking at severe eosinophilia. This is now greater than 5,000, so way beyond the realm of, of mild or moderate, um, but it's associated with a greater degree of tissue damage and potentially disease severity. So that's another one to, to look at. Yeah, and with the Rahul, the Rahul involvement was that he, he was recapping and reviewing this this article by Lamb, which was a, a 2021 article that came out, and Rahul was the reviewer that was commenting on the article. This was of cases in the northeast of severe eosinophilia, and most of those cases were due to malignancy, not like infections. And one of one of the comments that Rahul astutely pointed out is that you know in the northeast. Some of the helminth infections, you know, might be less prominent than they might be in other areas. So you can't just like assume that the same findings would be had if you repeated this in like the Southwest or something. Sure. It's almost like context matters. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. All right. And so, so you mentioned the smear, Beth. So that was like our first, our first test is the CBC. We talked about what to look at there, CBC, MCV, RDW, the differential, and we're going to pay attention to absolute counts. If there are abnormalities, many cases you're going to get a smear. So you mentioned some of the red flags that you'd look for on a smear. And then what were some other just like common low-hanging fruit that she she mentioned? She did talk about smoking being a very, very common cause and reversible cause of um, neutrophilia. So that's something to sort of think about if your patient's smoking um, actively and, and frequently that that may be causing it. Uh, we link to an article that does show it's reversible, so something you can talk to your patient about to encourage uh, cutting back. And also, in terms of your quick associations you'd want, we got into when you see a lymphocytosis, maybe think it's lymphoproliferative. These all make sense. Monocytosis, think maybe CMML. Uh, basophilia, think something myeloproliferative in terms of when you're starting to think about your differential. We did get into a little bit um, when you see low counts, like a neutropenia, actually, yeah, the neutropenia thing. We learned something here, right? Because Beth, did the term benign ethnic neutropenia like flag for you when you were listening back to this? Yes, I bristled. I bristled at the word ethnic because I'm always like, what does that mean? Like, what what exactly do we mean by ethnic? Um, and it's it's great because people are now starting to be a lot more critical about this. Obviously, it's a very small change, a very small step, but 
just being mindful of the way that we other non-white people in medicine and like how baked in it is into our education, curriculums, et cetera, is very important step towards sort of dismantling some of the systemic um, racism and, and things like that. So we linked to the article and they actually suggested they're advocating that we we now refer to this condition, which used to be called benign ethnic neutropenia, as typical neutrophil count with FY, A negative, B negative status, which essentially we, we talked about these patients who are Duffy null, typically having lower neutrophil counts. And I think what Beth was pointing out is just not to, you know, that's actually not abnormal for that part of the world, which was is largely sub-Saharan Africa. It's it's very common there, like and and it, it's a protective factor against malaria, is what they point out in this article. And that this Duffy Null status is seen in like eighty to one hundred percent of people in sub of sub-Saharan African ancestry. Um, so it's it was really interesting. So check that out. We'll link to it in the show notes. So as we work through the CBC here, we just talked about low white count. We've given some of the pearls on high white count. So just to recap, if you see a high white count, one of the easiest things is just be like, are you smoking? And if it's like a chronic, slightly elevated white count, it could be smoking. I think the other one is just, have they had any recent infections? Mm -hmm. So make sure that you're asking about that. And then if they have, just repeat the Williams method. You know, wait till the, a little while after the infection and repeat it and see if it goes away. There were some things that that definitely flagged, and and Beth mentioned them. Like if you get a smear and you see basophils, of course, for the lymphocyte count, the cutoff that she gave us for an absolute lymphocyte count was greater than five thousand, and those are patients that she said should probably be referred right to hematology. Paul, yeah. have you been using flow cytometry? Because when we were talking about the elevated white counts, that was one of the times she mentioned that. What what are your thoughts on on ordering flow cytometry? I, I think flow cytometry, for me personally, um, this is like non-expert opinion. This is like dummy opinion. But, you know, I, I don't like to order tests that I don't know what to do with. But I may actually order it if I have a patient with an absolute lymphocyte count greater than 5,000 where I have concern for like um, a CML. And I, I want to maybe sort of prep them for the hematology visit. I may actually order it in advance of that so that they have that information and kind of save them that step. But other than that, it's not something I order with wild abandon because I think I'm a little bit concerned that I wouldn't know what to do with the results in most cases. Yeah. And Beth, would you remind us, uh, remind the audience, what is what exactly is flow cytometry in like lay terms? Yeah. I loved the way our guest, Dr. Kwok, talk, talked about this because I did feel like she gave a really good simplified way of describing it to both myself and to like future patients. You take the blood, you're tagging it with different markers, you're running it through a machine, and the cells are going to be plotted based on that, um, on a scatter plot. And a pathologist evaluates that and sort of identifies the normal populations of cells and also abnormal uh, cell populations. So you can kind of find when there's a clonal disorder, B cell process or T cell process, and also pick up on blasts. So it's, it's very helpful and sort of, and it kind of tags, you know, where there's more than you would expect on the plot. It's a very like visual representation of, of the cells in your body. That is pretty much the rundown of leukocytosis. You can, if it's smoking or an infection, you can try to remove this, you know, you could repeat the labs once they've stopped smoking or once the infection's gone, see if that goes away. If it is somebody um, with an abnormal count, um, we told you some of those patients might be referred to hematology and uh, you might get flow cytometry before you send the person if the absolute lymphocyte counts greater than 5,000. But it's a pretty um, it, it's a pretty simple algorithm. And I think a lot of the times you'll be able to handle it 
uh, handle these things yourself, or at least, you know, do the basic workup before you send them on. I think we probably should move on to red cell disorders. And Paul, what's your, what's your move? You order EPO for everybody with like uh, anemia or elevated white uh, red cells? Yeah, right. Yeah, of course. One of my, my typical screening labs along with the Jack too. Um, no, it's, but we, so speaking of, of EPO, like that was actually the point that I liked a lot about this. When we think about erythrocytosis, I think one of the things we were concerned about is polycythemia vera. And so basically the framework that Dr. Kwok gave for us in terms of thinking about erythrocytosis is, is it dependent on erythropoietin or not, which I thought was actually kind of a neat way to think about it. So if you have a low EPO level, and you're still just pouring out red blood cells, that is probably a, a primary process. But if you have a normal or even elevated EPO, it might be a secondary thing that's actually driving it. And so the classic things are like hypoxia. Um, I think we had a long discussion about uh, untreated sleep apnea. And then she also made the point about kidney disease, which, which makes intuitive sense, but specifically renal cell carcinoma or renal artery stenosis, which are potential causes also of sort of this elevated erythropoietin level, which then in turn would drive the erythrocytosis. So I thought starting with an EPO level to kind of differentiate what is causing the underlying process was a neat way to start um, before you shuttle them right off to a hematology referral. Yeah. And we we did talk about, uh, so altitude's one of the things and training at altitude, that's why athletes do this. And one of the other things, one of the main, the case at the center of this was this patient um, who Stewart had seen in the distant past who was like a former bodybuilder who had used steroids and he had sleep apnea. So he had some hypoxic component and he had these really high hematocrits and he was wanting us to put him on, um, EP, uh, not EPO. He wasn't wanting us to put him on EPO. <laughs> yeah, bad that, idea probably. <laughs> that would have been a bad idea. Um, we did check his EPO levels and his EPO levels were high. No, but we were, were normal, inappropriately normal, I guess you could say. But anyway, this guy had very high hematocrits and uh, he had sleep apnea. We tried to get him on his CPAP using that as much as he could, but it wasn't helping. And then actually this guy ended up getting therapeutic phlebotomy so that he could go back on testosterone because even after we tightened up his lifestyle and his sleep, he still had really low testosterone levels, felt really bad. And uh, the local hematologist was actually doing therapeutic phlebotomy just so that he could maintain low enough counts to be safely on this medication. Because with hematocrits like above like, I want to say uh, the fifties for men or um, like the the mid fifties, low fifties, uh, you, you got to worry about this hyperviscosity. So that was what happened with this patient. And it was an interesting case. Beth, have you ever seen aquagenic pruritus or erythromyalgia, which we also talked about on the show? Yeah, only on my uh, I'm only on my you world, <laughs> not in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. So, and there's not been a lot of progress, which I, is quite frustrating for the poor folks who do have it, um, because it doesn't seem to respond to normal anti-itch therapies, and they really don't know exactly what's going on with it. But they're thinking of maybe targeting the Jack two pathway uh, with those heavy duty kind of jack two inhibitors but yeah garbs i love that you as a busy medical student are still in your free time like i wonder what's new in the world of aquagenic pruritus <laughs> you know, like the churches on that like I, that's that's terrific well, just just strong work that's that's why uh that's why we love her on the show a plus yeah well so this topic essentially, as Paul laid it out, you know, try to figure out, check an EPO level in these patients with high hematocrits and, uh, or high hemoglobins and see if the EPO is either low 
or inappropriately normal or high in these pieces. And, and then that'll kind of clue you in whether this is primary or secondary. And then you can you can start to look into it. We asked about getting a JAK2. It sounded like, you know, the hem- she as the hematologist preferred to order that. Of course, Stuart said he ordered, ordered the JAK2 on this patient before he sent them, but he did send them the hematology. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was done. Hey, audience, remember Paul's garbage diet? Yeah, that's right. Even though he tries to eat a lot of vegetables, he's, he's confessed many times on the show that he eats a lot of hot garbage, but with Green Chef, our sponsor for today, Paul, me, anybody can get really great, high-quality foods, organic veggies, high-quality proteins, all in your own home, and they do the meal planning for you so you don't have to do all this fancy grocery shopping. It all comes right to your house. And some of the prep work's already done too. So you have more time to do other things because we've all got a really busy life. They have 30 easy to follow recipes every week. And whether you're keto, paleo, plant-based, or you just want to eat a balanced, healthy meal and avoid Paul's garbage diet, well, they've got you covered. And it's a sustainable meal kit. They offset both their plastic and carbon. And it's actually the only meal kit that is both plastic and carbon offset. So I love Green Chef because I get to prepare it with my kids. I get to feel like I'm making food that looks professional and tastes great because I'm not going to lie, audience, I don't know how to season food. I can cook it so it's edible, but I don't know how to season food. But Green Chef, they do that for me, and I love it. Go to greenchef.com slash curb100 and use code curb 100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Once again, go to greenchef.com slash curb 100 and use code curb 100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. I think the final thing that we should get into before we end the show is thrombocytopenia and this was this is a topic that is I think I find really frustrating, Paul. It's just kind of annoying, right? Like it just pops up a lot of the time, and it, it's it's often not to the point. Thankfully, it's often the point where it's not an emergency, but it's like the platelets are less than 150, or they're in the you know in the 80 to 100 thousand range, and I'm just like, eh. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> right. If, but it goes back to I think looking at the old CBC, right? Mm-hmm. I think part of your triage is if this has been going on for a decade, you can feel a little bit better about it than right. if it's, well, not even better about it, but you sort of handle it differently than if it's an acute process, yeah. which might lead towards um, a specific trigger to then to go chase down. My my experience is a lot of the times the patient will have forgotten about it. If it's been there for a long time, it was work up, worked up a decade ago. You just have to dig in the chart enough and you'll find it. And yep. the patient's like, oh yeah, I guess I, maybe I did see a hematologist. I don't remember. Probably because they went there, the hematologist's like, ah, get out of my, like you're, you know, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't anything dangerous, but l- let's talk about it. First things first, Williams method, repeat it. Make sure, you know, look, look to see, did the pathologist note that there are the, that there's clumping on there. If there is, then you can run it in a blue tube, which are the citrated tubes, like the ones that we run coags in. So that then you can actually get a, a platelet count. But the main thing that you want to do, if it's a truly low, and we're mainly talking about isolated thrombocytopenia here. So if you have an isolated thrombocytopenia, the other counts are normal, but the platelets are low. Peripheral smear is going to be a big part of this because you really want to make sure the patient's not hemolyzing. 
because if they're hemolyzing, you got to think about like TTP uh, slash HUS DIC, which can be emergencies and you really got to know that right away. So definitely get a peripheral smear on people with low platelet counts and that should be done quickly. The other thing you'll find out from that smear is, is this person in like a blast crisis, which also you want to know right away. So the peripheral smear, fortunately, hemolysis and blast crisis um, usually is not going to be there. And then you'll kind of, if the cells look relatively normal, then you're in this other pathway. And Paul, do you find the lab work up up here helpful? I I mean, I do it, but it's, what do you think? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's, as you say, it's sort of one of those those strange sort of just slightly subnormal, stable for a million years that nothing comes back. And you're just kind of like, well, I guess I'm going to have to live with this. And then sometimes you actually do chase something down. I think we we talk about this, and this has been my experience, is that... um, thrombocytopenia specifically might be an indicator of uh, liver disease or primary hepatic disease. Um, like it's, it's, I think we talk in prior episodes about cirrhosis where platelets less than 150, I want to say the number yeah. is, is sort of a much more suggestive cirrhotic liver disease. But then also the, the sort of standard tests that we think about, at least that I sort of knee-jerk order are things like HIV and hep C, which thankfully yeah. don't usually reveal themselves as the cause of the thrombocytopenia most of the time. And then one of the things that we talked about, actually, I wanted to ask you if you, if you'd been checking for routinely is this idea of H. pylori, I guess, I think we said in the presence of dyspepsia, she might do that evaluation, but that was just not on my radar prior to this episode. I was not thinking of H. pylori as a cause of thrombocytopenia before hearing from Dr. Kwok. No, and I don't, I, I try not to check H. pylori. It's, uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> it's so just- you find it that you have to do something about it? It's a whole no, thing. No, it's just, I, I just feel like she mentioned even that she's treated a bunch of patients and she doesn't really feel it, it, it seems to make a difference. Beth, have you seen that being done locally, uh, you know, in, in your travels as a med student? No, but I do want to just let our listeners know to stay tuned for more on H. pylori. We are kind of queuing up an episode from our uh, our listener contest on the topic. So we'll we'll have a lot more to dig into. And maybe Dr. Wada is going to be ordering more H. pylori tests in the future. I don't know. We'll have to see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's all I meant. I, I mean, for this specific case, I, I feel like, you know, I'm not I'm trying not to I'm kind of a minimalist with testing garbs. So I, I, I the HIV hep C you know, I, I do order that. I like to know if patients have that. We can prevent a lot of badness yes. by finding that and treating that early. I think the treatment of H. pylori for someone with isolated thrombocytopenia, probably less clear. That's, yeah, that's kind of why I'm, I'm saying that. Probably low yield. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that she mentioned HIV hep C I, as like an infectious disease dork. I like really want everyone to always be screened for those things. And sometimes we do forget to do it. So we yeah. can treat those 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 viruses. And so to close out this topic of thrombocytopenia, so we've we've ruled out hemolysis, we've looked at the smear, this isn't a crisis, we checked HIV and hep C, and in parallel to all that, we're thinking through, you know, before we say this is ITP, we're saying, are there any drugs that did this? It, could this be HIT, you know, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? Is there an infection going on? Like, se- are they septic? Paul mentioned the spleen and the liver. There are certain autoimmune conditions that you, so you can kind of look for stigmata of connective tissue diseases and then uh, malignancies. But uh, ITP is a diagnosis of exclusion. It is out there, so you will see it eventually. But if you're working through these things and they have thrombocytopenia, especially if it's severe, I think that's a reasonable time. Um, Anybody that has ITP or has severe thrombocytopenia and you can't get the you can't figure out a cause. Certainly, less than fifty. If they're less than fifty thousand, I would consider you know to be 
in the severe, at least for you know general practice, um, I would refer those patients and uh, get some help from your friendly neighborhood hematologist because you know, like Dr. Kwok said, they they love CBCs like their morning cup of coffee, and I think that is a good place to end. Unless Garbs, do you, anything else that we're missing? Are we leaving anything on the table here? No. The only thing I will say is I do have something in common with Dr. Kwok. She mentions that if you read When Breath Becomes Air in public, you should be prepared to cry because you will cry. And I too (laughs) cried in public while reading that book on a train. At this point, I think I've cried on every method of transportation besides like a horse when I'm reading something that's emotional. But so yeah, Dr. Kwok, I I see you. So is that on your bucket list to be like crying while reading a book, like side saddle on a horse or something? It sounds so dangerous. That sounds like the beginning of uh, a terrible, a terrible outcome for me. Yeah, Garbs, you have such a promising career ahead of you. Please don't, please don't do that. And- I mean, to be fair, if you're crying on a horse, things are going great for you anyway. Like it's not. <laughs> All right, Paul. I think this is a great place to go to the outro. Sure. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. I was going to burn past it. You got it in. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. While you're there, please sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Not Early for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>